I heard of an elderly man who was having a lot of trouble hearing. In fact, he was starting to miss all sorts of conversations with his family and friends. And finally, he was convinced that he should go uh, get his ears checked and his hearing. And uh, lo and behold, he had significant hearing loss. The doctor, though, had good news that uh, with these particular hearing aids, why, he could actually have great hearing. And that was indeed the case. And so he fixed him up and got his hearing aids and got those all put in place and went home. And they came back a month later just to kind of have that follow-up checkup. And everything was working great. The doctor said, your family must be really pleased that you can hear so well again. And he goes, well, I actually haven't told him yet. And I just sit there and for the whole month he's just been listening to these conversations. And he said, I've actually changed my will three times. You see, he's listening to words, and words are very powerful. You know, our words can do some of the most beautiful, powerful things to encourage a heart, to extend comfort, uh, to exalt God, to instruct, to teach, to, to correct. I mean, our words can be so very powerful for so many good things. On the other hand, our words can hurt and injure, and sometimes they just literally maim people. Do you know it's the power of words that not only could bring a, a church or even a country together, it's the power of words that can set nations at war each other with each other. It all goes back to our words. It's like I uh, read about this. Apparently there's this gravestone in England by this church. It's fairly old. And on this tombstone are these etchings. And it just says this. Beneath this stone, a lump of clay lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. Is it going to take that in order for us to get control of our words? Hopefully not. Uh, the book of James is going to address this head on. You guys remember the theme of the book of James. It's two words. It's maturity matters. And what the book is doing is showing us what maturity in Christ looks like. Chapter 1 deals with the mindset of a maturing faith in Christ. Chapter 2 starts addressing what are the obstacles to a maturing faith in Christ. Well, so we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, the need to develop a love that sees through labels. And James tackles head-on the issue of discrimination. Then, he, like we saw last week... He talks about the need to understand the nature of a living faith. Your faith must be more than words or just some sort of mental assent to certain facts that are true about Jesus or Christianity. Saving faith involves a true trust in Christ, which will be manifested in your life. By the way, that's what the world is looking for. And then when you come to chapter 3 and what we're going to look at today is one of the major obstacles to maturing in faith in Christ. And that is the need to gain mastery over our words. We're going to look at it, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, all the way through verse 12. You're going to find that he's going to refer to the tongue. And this is a common Jewish literary uh, device to attribute a specific part of one's body as representative, as an aspect of our being. He's going to specifically reference the tongue. But the tongue really just is like a window to one's soul. It reveals what's inside, what's in your heart. And so he is going to begin with a word for the wise. Let's take a look at it, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Let not many of you become teachers, 
my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. The type of teachers he's specifically after are those who set themselves up as teachers of the word or spiritual authorities, pastors, elders, missionaries, people teaching in a variety of settings uh, in early Christianity, maybe in small groups, even what we see today. Maybe you find it in some sort of Sunday school setting. But there is the idea that if you were a teacher of the word, you were actually going to be held to a stricter judgment. And James, the the half-brother of Jesus, actually includes himself in this camp. You see, all of us are going to be uh, evaluated in terms of what we did with our life. If you're a Christian, the idea of whether you're going to heaven or hell is settled by virtue of the fact that you've placed your faith in Christ. It's not a judgment as to whether you go to heaven and be in Christ's presence or hell, but it's actually a judgment or an evaluation of your works, what you did. And James is saying, if you're a teacher of the word, you're actually going to undergo a stricter judgment. And he's saying this because even in the very early beginnings of Christianity, we have people that are aspiring and holding positions of quote-unquote spiritual authority and saying, you know, I kind of like all the attention. I like to be on the center stage. And yet they were teaching things that weren't wrong. One of the major areas of problems that we see addressed in the New Testament is you've got the idea that people were saying, yeah, you're saved by Jesus, and that's where you get salvation, but you've got to follow Jewish law. You've got to become Jewish. You've got to become circumcised. Like what we say, uh, we see even today, is it's called legalism. Yeah, it's believing in Jesus, but you've got to follow these kind of rules. And your, your salvation is kind of tied to those rules and your ability to follow them. But then you have some that were setting themselves up as spiritual authorities that were actually contradicting the truth of Scripture. Some that actually didn't even really know it, but they just liked the attention. And there were others, and this is something that's become extremely prevalent in America, that just catered to the whims of the people. In fact, Paul addresses that in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, you want to beware of those who are setting themselves up as spiritual authorities, but all they're doing is really tickling the ears of their hearers. They find out what do people want to hear, what will attract the crowds, what will keep them, and that's what we're going to tell them. Yeah, we'll weave in a little bit of biblical truth, but it's all more about entertaining, which has become widespread in American Christianity. Friends, you want to present the truth accurately. Let me tell you what you're looking for when it comes to spiritual leaders, especially Bible teachers, men or women, whatever realm that they're functioning in whether in a small group or a large group or even just personal discipleship, do they handle accurately the Bible? You're looking for accuracy with scriptural truth. Are they presenting the truth as it matches the Word? Do they teach the Word? Do they understand it? And are they after your spiritual development in Christ? Do they present the gospel clearly? That's where life begins when we trust in Christ. And are they using scriptural truth to help you grow and develop and mature? So you're looking for accuracy with the Bible. The other thing you're looking for is authenticity with their lives. Does their life match this book? Now, we're not talking about perfection. I want you to know that every human teacher is going to let you down. But we are talking about direction, that there is a growth in holiness. There's an integrity of heart. When they sin, they confess it. But they are moving forward and growing in grace. He says, those are the kind of people that you want to be following. And so he says, beware, they're going to recur a stricter judgment. And so don't let many of you become teachers, because God takes this teaching of Scripture seriously. 
And so he goes on to say, you know, verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Notice James also includes himself in the stumbling. That's the reality. Though we are saved from our sins, we stumble, right? We err, we misstep. That's what the word means. And that's especially true with our words. So he says, but notice, I don't want you to miss this in verse 2. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. There's our word, teleos again, mature. It's the theme of the book. God desires his children to grow up to the fullness of maturity. And if you can learn to control your words, why you not only manifest maturity, it's the act of learning to get control of your words that even brings about maturity in your life. You will be a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. That is how important it is for you and I to have developed a Christ-centered approach to our words. You see, our words merely are a mirror to what's going on in our soul and our heart, what we really think about. That's what Jesus said. Remember Luke chapter 6, verse 45? Jesus says, The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. And then Jesus says this. He says, For the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. What's going on in here, what's going on interior, in your soul, what you're processing, thinking about, has a way of being expressed with your words. Whether you say them, you write them, you put them on Facebook, Twitter, text them, whatever it is, you produce some sort of document, whatever it is, your words are an expression of your thinking. It can be good, or it can be used for evil. And so James is going to give some great illustrations of just how powerful one's tongue is to influence life. Look at verse 3. He says, now if we put the bits into the horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. You see, horses can be controlled. I mean, horses are magnificent animals, and they're extremely powerful. But they can just, they can just kind of go and do their own thing. But when you actually develop trust between the rider and the horse... And you place that bit into their mouth. It's just a small piece of metal. goes right there in their mouth. Why well, you can control that entire animal. In fact, it's like horses are made to do this. And it's a beautiful combination between rider and the horse. But it all gets started with that trust relationship and that bit in their mouth. And so you see it. I mean, you can do a lot of things. You can round up cattle. You can go riding. You can go hunting with your horses. Uh, you can play polo with your horse. We don't do that a lot in Texas, but in other parts of the world, they do it. But that powerful horse is controlled by that very little bit. And that's how it is with our life. Our tongue, really small, but extremely powerful. Or he gives another illustration. Look at verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. In James' time, there are going to be quite a few people that live along the Mediterranean. And there were cargo ships that would literally bring massive amounts of cargo across the Mediterranean Sea. 
Now, these ships would pale in comparison to the size of some of the steamers and tankers that we've got today. But to see that, they would like, well, look how huge this is. And it's floating. And yet it's controlled by a little rudder. Maybe you had the experience, you maybe saw a cruise ship or one of these massive cargo ships or an oil tanker. You're, you're like, how in the world can that thing even float? And you see that in the very back of it, there's this small little rudder. You know, that controls the entire ship. Everything is controlled by the rudder. You see, the inability to control the rudder is going to lead to major problems. In World War II, there was a ship called the Bismarck. It was considered unsinkable. It was the lead ship of her class. It was kind of this prize ship among the Germans, and it became one of the key targets for the British. They wanted to wipe this out. On one occasion, the Bismarck was, was out uh, in front of occupied France and along the coastline, and it was advancing, but there, were all, there was the British fleet that was ready to try to take it. Seeing the danger, the Bismarck tried to get back to the coast of France. And what happened, though, was rather surprising. Even though it was making its way back to safety where they could protect the ship by all the arms that they had on the coast of France, suddenly the ship did a 180 and headed back right in front of the British fleet. And furthermore, it started making these very erratic moves as it's making forth there. And what happened? Actually, there was a torpedo that somehow damaged just the rudder of the ship. And you recall Winston Churchill's orders, sink the Bismarck? Where did that all come from? Well, that came from this event. It just took a shock that hit the rudder that controlled this massive ship. And friends, that's what it is like with our words. If you can't control your tongue, there's going to be a lot of damage. There's going to be all sorts of destruction. Be not only what you do say, but what you don't say. A runaway horse or a ship that's lost its rudder and is moving forward and causing shipwreck is going to have widespread influence. You know, so they're talking about World War II. They used to have a poster. Maybe some of you may have seen this. And it just said this. Loose lips sink ships. That's right. Some of you have seen it. Loose lips sink ships. And this was put out because we wanted to remind our servicemen and women to not disclose secrets or confidential information or civilians because it's a wartime. Loose lips still wreck lives even today. You see, we want to use our words for the purposes that God intended, for encouraging, giving heart to others, supporting them, engaging in conversation, to edify. That has the idea of building people up. Whether you're counseling, you're teaching, you're correcting, you're confronting, you're discipling, you're appreciating, you're explaining things, you're enjoying people, but you're to use your mouth and your tongue specifically to use them up to build people up, to edify, to accomplish good things, to engage in conversations. It becomes kind of a heartbeat of relationships. And we're also to use our mouths, our words, for exaltation, for the authentic worship of God, sing his praises, recite his words, pray. You see, this is a word for the wise. But let me also show you that there is a word of warning. You see, in verse 5, he says, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. 
And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. You see, our mouths, our words, however they're expressed, can be used for evil. I mean, just consider just some of the damaging power of words just from individuals like Adolf Hitler or the Ayatollah Khomeini or Joseph Stalin or Saddam Hussein. Their words literally set fires and create all sorts of havoc. And you see, our tongue boasts of great things, and yet it has the potential to cause great damage. And you see that in verse 6 because he's talking about, like, your mouth can literally set aflame an entire situation. And so what he's referencing there, in Israel during the dry season, it only takes like a spark. If it hit some of that dry grass or a dry shrub, pretty soon you'd have a fire on your hands. They didn't have the modern-day ways of fighting fires that we have today. They could wipe out a lot of land and a lot of, of and cause a lot of damage. You see, I want you to know something. Our tongues can be like sparks, and although you can control your tongue as you're abiding in Christ, you can't control the effects of your words. You might think this is kind of the effect that it'll have, but you actually can't control it. There's a, there was a fire that took place in Chicago in 1871. It's known as the Great Chicago Fire. And it was very devastating. Burned down half the city. Over 120,000, 25,000 people were made homeless. Killed over 250 people. And tradition has, and they keep coming back, it all got started with a cow. Mrs. O'Leary's cow apparently about somewhere about 8, 8.30 at night, somehow kicked over a lantern. And that one act literally burned down half the city. What he's saying here, our tongue is a fire, verse 6. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. When James is referencing hell, it's the word Gehenna. It was an actual place. If you lived in Jerusalem, just south of Jerusalem, in the Valley of Hinnom, was called Gehenna. It is the garbage dump of Jerusalem, and it was always burning and smoldering. But if you've actually read your Bible, you know that this Valley of Hinnom was the scene of some of the most despicable events that took place in Israel. You see, uh, prior to Israel coming, and even after Israel entered into the Promised Land, there was a little G-O-D named God called Moloch. And this particular God was worshipped through the sacrifice of children, where they literally would heat up these stone hands of this God, this idol, and they would fire it up and get as hot as they could, and then people would take their children and sacrifice their child to appease this God. The whole idea of killing children is in a modern uh, destructive practice. This has been going on for a long time. And he, when he refers to this, this place, Gehenna, that was, that's why the Jews at this time, they associated Gehenna with hell, and they always had a picture of it. You ever been around smoldering garbage, burning in the stench? It's hell, waste, destruction. And friends, it sets on fire our tongues. It creates this kind of damage and destruction. You see, the whole course of your life, the circle of your life, gossip, 
slander, false statements, lying, filthy language, stories that are inappropriate, innuendos, just all-out coarse language, saying the most defiling of things, guess what? It comes out of our mouth. And it's really like James says, it's, it comes from hell itself. When you're speaking evil, whether you're condescending or being critical or trying to control a person, you look at racism, you look at condemning others, all of this gets started from the heart, which gets expressed from the mouth. You ever notice, like, when you kind of are traveling around, you're going to go through a forested area, you see those signs put out by the National Forest Service that talks about the fire danger today? Like that one there, you see smoke in the air? And it tells you the fire danger. So, like, sometimes you see that uh, it's low. You know, there's times where there's a low fire danger of our tongues going to cause a lot of problems. Like, for instance, like, coming from a worship service, like, especially today, I bet you're going to be kind of, like, on guard and thinking a lot about your tongue. I had one guy at the first service saying, I'm not saying anything for the rest of the day. I'm like, oh, okay. His wife was looking at him like, great. Here we go. But he obviously was listening and paying attention. You see, when you come from times of prayer or study of scripture and worship, uh, there's something about us being in tune with the Spirit of God and worship Him that, that puts us in a situation where we have to be more careful with our speech. But then, of course, there can be times where the fire danger is moderate. This is, occurs, and we're so familiar with it, because we're kind of just going through the routines of our day. And, and things might go going well, but don't you see how often we kind of slip into autopilot and we just start doing things with never actually thinking about God or talking to Him, even just quick prayers. Uh, we're just kind of moving and doing. Well, that's kind of when the fire danger is moderate for you to say things with your mouth that could be potentially very injurious. might even cause a fire. And then, of course, there are times when the fire danger is high or it's listed as extreme. This happens like when you're really stressed out or you're low on sleep, or if you're a male, you're hungry, okay? Just telling you. Or, like for some people, haven't you noticed like their favorite football team loses, and like, whoa, everything's just bad. I mean, I mean, some of you had a terrible week because of the Cowboys last week, right? And it's, but what happens? You're, we're in extreme danger. You might say some really damaging things really quickly. So, friends, it's like the sign says, only you can prevent wildfires. You've got the ability, through Christ, to actually prevent widespread destruction. Some of us are low, moderate, some of you are in extreme situations, but friends, only you can prevent forest fires. And I want to challenge you to do this. Open, before you open your mouth, turn your heart to God, just even for 20 seconds. You might be shocked and surprised what God could do in 20 seconds as you say, God, would you help me in this situation? Before I speak, would you help me understand what does maturity in Christ look like in this situation? He will give you an answer. And you might spare yourself and many others all sorts of problems by just doing that. But he says, you know what, our tongue, it's like a fire. Or look at verse 7. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. And here he's talking about animals, but he says, verse 8, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. See, we've been able to train birds and dolphins, and we got dancing bears, we can get elephants to go in line and hold each other's tails with their 
of their big long nose and everything. We can do that. But he says, you know, even though we're successful on that, there's just one that we're pretty unsuccessful at, and that is taming our tongue. And he says, you know, the poison of our tongue, it's like venom. You see that? It's full of deadly poison. It's been calculated that like for every word in Hitler's Mein Kampf, every word equated to 125 people dying in World War II. Let me give you some of the deadly poisons. One is gossip. It's the poison of gossip. Um, it's where you belittle people, you, you harm them, you, you say things now that you would never say to their face. And gossip can be extremely destructive. And by the way, don't think that, uh, well, that's for folks that don't know Christ. Actually, it seems like churches are hotbeds for gossip. It's the idea that you're going to tear somebody up. And it's like, well, we're not even thinking that God might want to have holiness with our mouth because this passage is avoided. Let me just tell you about gossip. By the way, if you're a parent or a grandparent, your kids are learning how to use their mouth from you. So on gossip, for instance, there was this one woman. Uh, she apparently had a, a reputation, and she was good at it, of just tearing people up and shredding them. And she didn't think much of it, you know, maybe she thought that was her ministry in the church or whatever. And she became convicted that she had really devastated a particular woman. And she had pretty much destroyed her. She didn't know exactly what to do, but she was convicted that this was wrong. So she set up a point with the pastor, met with the pastor, kind of explained the situation. And he goes, all right, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go home. I want you to get one of your down pillows. I want you to cut it open, and I want you to walk through the city, and I want you to just spread those feathers just throughout the city. You come back and see me tomorrow. So if you ever wonder, like, where do these pastors get these weird ideas? Okay, there's one of them, right? And she's like, this is strange. But it's like, well, I guess he knows what he's talking about, so she did it. She went around the city and put all these feathers. She came back the next day. And uh, she reported, I, I did what you said, and said, good. This is what I want you to do. Today, I want you to go back throughout the city, and I want you to pick up every one of those feathers. She's like, what? I couldn't do that. They're blown all over. He says, that's right. That's gossip. Those are your words. You can't get them back. They're all over the place now. There's forgiveness in Christ, but you need to understand your actions and the implications of them. See, before you listen to gossip, you might want to cut it off. And just say, you know what? I'm, I'm sorry. I, I got to take a pass on this. No, thank you. Some years ago, Morgan Blake, he was a sports writer for the Atlanta Journal, wrote the following satire I am more deadly than the screaming shell from the howitzer. I win without killing. I tear down homes, break hearts, and wreck lives. I travel on the wings of the wind. No innocence is strong enough to intimidate me. No purity pure enough to daunt me. I have no regard for truth, no respect for justice, no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea, and often as innocent. I never forget, and I seldom forgive. My name is, anybody know? Gossip. Let me give you another poison of the tongue, and that is flattery. It's the idea that you give insincere praise, given to further your own interest. It's to manipulate people with nice words to get them to do what you want from your self-centered, self-occupation mindset. Friends, that idea of flattery, that too is a poison. You're trying to control and manipulate people. 
And that's why James writes, verse 8, But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Some people think like, well, you know, I, I just needed to speak my mind or get it off my chest. Or they needed to hear those words. Or maybe it'll do them some good. And we live in a culture today that our society encourages us to speak out in thoughtless ways and disregard the deadly impact of our words. I mean, look at it. Look at it in the media. Look at it on the political scenario. It is despicable what's going on. It happens all the time. In fact, we think it's commonplace. Let me tell you one place it should not occur, and that is the church. We're talking the body of Christ. We're called to live in Christ, to live differently. We're to think about it, and so he says in verse 9, think about this. With it, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing my brethren. These things ought not to be this way. We're not to be like praising God with one, one sentence and the next just cursing and tearing people up on the next. I remember um, shortly after I became a Christian, I was at the University of Oregon. Uh, it's only been like several weeks as a brand new believer in Christ. Pretty much all on my own. And, and I'm starting to learn how to walk with Jesus. And I became deeply convicted that some of the words coming out of my mouth could not be reconciled with this new relationship that I had with Christ. Okay, I, I grew up in a home, I heard this all the time, swearing, and I mean, that's kind of how it worked. Worked um, with athletes, kind of worked with uh, my friends, that's just kind of how people communicated. But now I'm, I'm following Jesus, and I became deeply convicted that this doesn't work anymore. And so, I had to learn how to speak differently, to not say those things. And that's what God says. He's in the process of transformation. Sometimes that's like a microwave. You know, it's like put it in two minutes and there's some pretty quick changes. But oftentimes, sanctification is like putting it into a slow cook oven and it takes time. But I can assure you that God wants to address the issues of our mouth. He's saying, you know what? We shouldn't be inconsistent. We should have uh, a degree of symmetry and of congruency of how we speak, how we live, and who we are. And so he says... From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things shouldn't be this way. So how is it that we can be all sweet and kind in Bible study, but then you turn us loose in the office and we're very different? We can be kind with strangers, but guess what? At home, we're a whole new breed of cat. What God is developing in us is maturity. That means we're going to have to address the issues of our mouth, which is really a hard issue. You can't bypass it. It's critical to your maturity, and that's why he's addressing it. And so he says in verses 11 and 12, he closes, You know, does the fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? The answer, no. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? No. Nor can salt water produce fresh. What he's saying is that we need to have character and behavior that matches our identity. And your speech is really a spiritual barometer. If you want to know where you're really at, what's going on in your heart, just listen to your speech. Great indicator. Can show you like, oh, there's tremendous growth that's taking place. Look at how you're using your words to encourage people, whether you're writing them or speaking them. And 
look at the benefit and the way you're teaching and the way you're being effective. Or on the other hand, look at how you're damaging folks in some pretty serious ways. If you want to know, perhaps if you're in a situation where you've got very few good relationships, it might have a lot to do with this passage and its lack of application in your life. And friends, our words reveal that we need the gospel. Is there anybody here that's never really had a trouble with their tongue? Hmm. We're like, no, I've got some examples. Like even from this week, right? Friends, we need the gospel. We need Jesus. He provides forgiveness, salvation. All of his righteousness and his righteous life is given to us when we believe. He died and paid the penalty for sins, and he rose again and gives us new life. And this is a new life in Christ where we live differently, which includes that we speak differently. And really, you're going to find that the problem is, doesn't start with your words. It starts with your mind. It's what you're thinking about, what really garners your attention. That's why Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, and whatever is honorable, and whatever is right, and whatever is pure, and whatever is lovely, and whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think about them. Fill your heart and the mind with truth and that which is good, and that is going to have a tendency to come out of your mouth. I was a pretty young Christian when someone handed me a book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters, which is kind of, I mean, first of all, it's like, where in the world did you get this idea? It's a fascinating read, and really it's a series of letters from this senior demon named Screwtape to his nephew cousin, this junior demon, uh, called Wormwood. And it's interesting, there's a couple sentences here that I just want to share with you on this subject. Screwtape writes to Wormwood, his demonic nephew. It is funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done in keeping things out. I want you to think about that. So what happens, friends, when we sin with our mouth? Saying things we shouldn't have. Wrote things, communicated things, put them on text, Twitter, Snapchat, whatever. What do you do when you sin? Well, we confess our sin, right? First verse I learned as a Christian, memorized, out of necessity, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then you might need to do this. If you've sinned with your mouth, why, you might need to confess it to another individual and ask for your forgiveness. I can tell you from first-hand experience, this is difficult and painful. I remember years ago, I was in a meeting. A particular couple came up. It was a couple with a lot of drama, a lot of issues. I said something in the meeting that was true, but didn't need to be said, and kind of put this couple in a bad light. But, and then the meeting goes on, kind of finished up, and I left the guy's office. But by the time that I got back to my office... I felt deeply convicted by the Holy Spirit that what I had said was not right. And I strongly sensed that I needed to go back and tell this individual and ask for forgiveness. So I showed back up to this guy's office, not Tom was rather surprised to see me. Like, hey, yeah, hey, just like you weren't expecting to see me. Uh, but I want to tell you something. What I said there, I should have said it. Will you forgive me? And I want you to know I hated the experience. 
I had this profound sense when I walked out of this office, I never want to do that again. But it was probably pretty good for my flesh to realize that there's a new master in town, it's Jesus Christ. And I want to learn to walk with him and follow him. And you want to ask God, fill you with truth. You want to ask God, would you teach me what it looks like to be a vessel fit for your honorable use? I don't want to be tearing people up. I, I want to be used for your good. So God, would you do the work? I'm dependent upon the Spirit, and I need your truth. Like it says in Proverbs 21, 23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. And if you have a pattern of spewing a bunch of garbage out of your mouth, setting off a lot of fires, you need retraining. And it's possible in Jesus. He brings transformation from the inside out. And so what it does is starting with putting noble truth in your head and your heart and your mind. You're going to actively do that. It just doesn't automatically happen. But second, you need to learn to think before you speak. Learn to think before you speak. And let me give you just one other principle. This has served me really well when I've done it, and I've paid some tuition when I haven't. When in doubt, don't. When in doubt, don't. If you've got some doubt whether that's a good idea to say that or to write that, don't do it. Just hold off. And while we're on the subject of your words, I want to address something that probably rarely ever gets discussed. It's something called a minced oath. It's a euphemistic expression where you replace part of a profane or blasphemous word or statement, and you alter its spelling or its pronunciation just a little bit. You know, like gosh, or golly, or gee, or heck, or we can keep going. And it's, it's a vulgar expression, but you think you can tone it down by changing a few of the letters or the pronunciation of it. I just want to throw this out there. I'm, I'm guilty of missed oath. It's happened. But let's realize God's bringing us to holiness. He doesn't want pollution. He wants holiness. And when you see, when Jesus Christ is the Lord of our hearts, that means he's also the Lord of our lips. Remember what David said in Psalm 141, 141 verses 3 and 4? He says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, and keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing. You see, David knew that whatever's going on in here is going to come out your mouth. That's why he's saying, fill me with truth. So before you speak, ask this. Is it what I really want to say? Is it true? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Now, sometimes you're going to have to say some difficult truth to people. That's because you're committed to their well-being. You know you got a real friend if they'll tell you the things that are difficult to hear. But friends, I want to cast a vision for you. A vision for us using our words, whether we write them or we speak them, for the building up of the body, for the encouragement of people, for the exaltation of God. Because you see, friends, the words of our mouth, they reveal the maturity of our heart. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. God, we all stumble in many ways, just like James said. So, now that you've got our full attention on this issue, we're going to pause. And would you talk with God and ask Him to understand what maturity in Christ looks like coming forward this week? Or maybe you just confess some sin right now. And Lord, for someone who's come here today who's never trusted in Jesus, and their words condemn them. 
May they, like many of us who come here today, just turn from self and sin and trust in Jesus and realize that we are forgiven eternally and that you will live within us. And we can live differently because we follow you and live in you. So God, have your way in our lives. May we mature in Christ for your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.